Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making Coast of Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. Hey, uh, as uh, as I usually like to do, I reflect a lot on the shows that we've had recently, and uh, there's been just a string of incredible shows. Uh, one that I want to bring your attention to is the conversation I had with John Carter. Uh, he, with his siblings, have started, you know, they started the real estate company. But he has had this long history of community involvement, and what he has done uh, in the in the area of the community has been absolutely incredible. With with uh, Carter's Champions and other efforts that he's involved in, and he's a very humble guy, really believes in giving back to the community. He's he's doing what I like to say is uh, living by example, and uh, you can go see that conversation at the Facebook page, the Super Talk Mississippi, or the Super Talk Gulf Coast Facebook page. And I think you'll enjoy it. I also enjoyed catching up with my friend Ashley Edwards, who will be moving on from the uh, business council, the Coast Business Council, in November. And uh, and it was just a terrific conversation. I think actually Ashley's going to have probably a bigger impact in the private sector than he did as a, the executive director of or the CEO of the business council. Where you know when you're the CEO of a business council, you got a lot of people you got to try to keep happy, and you can't always say what you think. And he's got a big brain, and he's thought a lot about what's what's best for coastal Mississippi going forward and how to best get there. And I think he's going to you know when you take off uh, some of the some of the encumbrances on him as a CEO of the business council, he's going to be able to be a lot more honest about situations. So I'm looking forward to staying in touch with Ashley as we go forward. Uh, in the past couple of weeks, so I had a great conversation with Senator Jeremy England, and Jeremy's a smart guy. He's a lawyer. He reads a lot. Um, he's a very significant conservative, but what I love about him is that he has an incredible open mind. He wants to have conversation uh, uh, conversations that may involve some disagreement, but he's always been able to have a debate with someone and it not be personal. And he really laments, actually, that we're not able to have the kind of conversations in our society today that can build a better point of view. He, he thinks it's important to hear a different point of view. And he, as he reads all the former mayor, excuse me, president's books and all these you know, books about our founding fathers and what they went through and how they thought about this. Um, he wishes we could we could be in a world where we're not so divided by the media that we have access to today. And he and I spent an entire show just sharing our thoughts about media and what's happening and the wedges that are being driven into society today by uh, the likes of social media. We actually focused on 
a really interesting graphic that I came across showing over 30 problems with media today. And I mentioned in that conversation that I was going to invite my friend James O'Byrne back. James and I worked together in New Orleans at NOLA Media Group. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor and writer. He retired and moved to France. <laughs> he's a he's a traveler, photographer, and, and a partner in what he calls the Travelers for Life LLC. But uh, he, he's just a smart guy. You know, I, I would say of him that he's also got a big brain and someone I really enjoy visiting with, and it's good to good to have the opportunity to catch up with him. So without any further ado, let me move over to my friend James O'Byrne, who's coming to us from the countryside of France. It's good to see you, my friend. How are you, Ricky? Good to see you. Good to see you. So uh, for people who have not heard us talk before, where are you right now? Tell me about this community where you're located. Uh, we live in, a, my wife Paula and I live in a small village uh, called Flavigny sur Ozeran. Um, some of your uh, older listeners will probably remember it as the uh, site of the movie Chocolat um, with Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp, um, filmed in this little French village. We've lived here for five years now. Um, town was established in about 700 AD. Um, it's a site of a famous battle by Julius Caesar's. It was Julius Caesar's last conquest. He camped out on this hilltop before he went to the hilltop next door for his last invasion of the Gauls. And it's just a beautiful medieval village. Our house was built in 1633. And um, right now I'm sitting on our terrace looking out over the valley that's the green valley. It's not so green this summer, but uh, it uh, is behind our house, just on the ramparts of this walled village on the hilltop. So it's... uh, it's been a great place to land, and um, it's a great community, um, very friendly and very welcoming. So we've uh, we've fallen in love here, and we're not planning on going anywhere. Yeah, I love I love following your Impala's, you know, journeys from there, and and your your socializing there. You know, it's a great community you live in where people know each other and spend time together. How's your French doing, and are you able to kind of hang well in that in that environment these days? Yeah, in the last year or so, we really had sort of um, um, passed some kind of uh, barrier where we are now regularly invited to events in the village where they're only going to speak French. Now, we started studying French as soon as we got here. We, we both thought we knew a little bit of French when we got here, but we were quickly, uh, we were quickly disavowed of that notion um, when we actually had to speak French at speed in the countryside. Not in Paris, not like nice tourism restaurant French, but actually function every day, go to the grocery store, go to the hardware store. So we started lessons with a French professor who's a friend of ours two hours a week for the last five years. And I guess four years in or so, we we kind of hit a level where we could hold our own. And um, we still, I think we still, I think we'll be working on French for the rest of our lives. But uh, but we are regularly invited to events where there are some people who speak English, but no English is going to be spoken. And that's been a real change for us. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's been great. Well, OK, so I see a lot of camaraderie, a lot of smiling faces in the in this village pictures that you that you post. I always see what looks like really good food, and I bet you guys are drinking some amazing wine. Uh, that amazing part of your life. Say that again. Amazing and inexpensive. Right. 
that part of your life has been probably very amazing. Hey, the other thing that I noticed, every time you post a picture of Paula, she's reading a book. You guys are, y'all read a bunch, don't you? We do. She reads more than I do, but we, we both uh, we both take the time that we've been given by not working anymore to read a lot. In fact, she just uh, she just recovered from COVID, and during her seven days of COVID, which I did not catch, um, she read a book a day. So, um, <laughs> good uh, lord! Yep that that is incredible, man. That that is definitely incredible. Hey, you know, go, looking back to our days in New Orleans, uh, your heart and soul is always going going to have a, a huge connection to that community, isn't it? Well, we go back there every year for Jazz Fest, and uh, and that's kind of um, that first day of Jazz Fest is you know kind of our church. So um, yes, it's always going to be special. I mean, we spent almost fifty years on the Gulf Coast in New Orleans, and um, you know went through Katrina with everybody else, and so uh, yeah, it's always um, going to be a um, special place for us. But I think that. After a couple of years here, we started referring to this as home. Like when we were in New Orleans, we said it's time to go home, and we meant here. So it took a little time, but uh, but this is definitely home now for us. So, do you, do you, James Thompson? Do you reflect about your time in journalism? I mean, you were, you were one of the most capable editors and writers that I, that I knew. And uh, you have tremendous responsibilities in sort of the di- digital revolution before I came to the scene and, and, and during that time. How often do you reflect about it, and do you miss it? Um, I reflect about it a lot, but I don't really miss it. And I guess the reason that I don't miss it is that I feel really fortunate that I got to do it when a couple of things were true about journalism, particularly daily newspaper journalism, that aren't true today. It was profitable. That's one thing. It was. Uh, I think it was really relevant and important in um, in creating, informing, and um, and strengthening communities and holding them together. I'm talking about physical communities. You know, the space we live in and the neighbors we have, and the and that 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 daily newspapers were great at at telling you what was going on and keeping you informed and and. And giving everyone a common language and a common set of um, a common set of, of uh, experiences and knowledge to be able to then go tackle the problems of the community, and certainly in the last eight or nine years of my career, that became more and more difficult as it, as daily newspapers struggled more and more against the onslaught of Facebook and Google and and the the tech giants that took all the advertising and then took all of the all of the content as as their feeds and used that content to then drive their revenues through the roof and and it became harder to do the kind of journalism that the on the local level that I regarded as the as the you know the best years of my career so I, I, um, yeah I see that we're, we're coming to the end of the segment we'll pick it up on the other side but w- one of the things that occurs to me as you were as you were sort of talking about the evolution uh, of conditions and situations that led us to where we are today when we used to talk about fragmentation of media never in our wildest imagination could we have ever <laughs> thought it would be where it is today no. when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about that with my friend James O'Byrne we'll see you after this break. 
live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend James O'Byrne with us today. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor and writer. Uh, he was the former VP of Innovation at Nola Media Group in New Orleans. We worked together there. And uh, he moved to the countryside of France a few years ago, and uh, now calls France his home, but he's a smart guy, pays a lot of attention to what's going on. Listen, uh, I mean, it wouldn't surprise you as a listener to to know that I have a tremendous passion for um, news and information that is provided to citizens in this country in as unbiased a way as possible so they can choose to decide what their views are going to be about something so that we can have a more viable democracy. And there is, there is, I mean, obviously I think most people come to have come to the conclusion that a good democratic society uh, is really, really determined by, and it's, it's health is determined by whether there's going to be free flowing media. Um, But when, (laughs) so as a result of what we're seeing this in our divided and polarized world that we're in today, because the media ecosystem has changed so dramatically, it it shouldn't surprise you because of my media experience that I would be very interested in having conversations about it. I have to be honest with you, the more I learn about it, the the more, the more, (laughs) the more I realize that. I'm not sure anyone knows how to wrestle this this gorilla to the to the to the ground. Uh, what has happened uh, with the role the media has played, the social media media companies in general, um, as uh, my friend Alberto Bargan said, there's so much n- noise on the national stage. The Knight Foundation anymore doesn't even attempt to get involved in that conversation. They think that the real opportunity to impact communities is in local news, and that is still true for sure. And that is definitely still true, isn't it, James? I mean, that's an area where we can still impact, but uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's becoming much more complicated maze to sort through, even on the local level, isn't it? Well, the the uh, I think the, the I agree with you. The local news is extraordinarily important. I think what's become difficult is to come up with an economic model in the in the current environment where where local news can be viable and supported. I think that's why work of groups like the Knight Foundation is so important because we have to come up with these economically viable ways for people just to be able to know what's going on in their in their communities. And I think that. I think that one of the things that these digital devices and these digital platforms in particular have done is driven us into online communities where where we're, we're less attentive toward the things that really matter, which is where we live, the quality of life where we are, our neighbors, our, our, our towns. You know, those are the communities that really count. And I think that we've lost touch with the importance of those and certainly with the with the struggles of local newspapers and local media in general, it's harder to stay involved and connected and informed about what's going on in your local community. So, so I think that's a real threat to, to our ability to maintain a really healthy democracy. So, James, when I left the Sun-Herald, there were, I think, almost 50 employees 
That was in 2009 in the newsroom. Uh, in newsroom today, there may I think there's five. Right. And so when the Sun Herald posts on social media, they post a lot of news that's happening in other communities. So they're just sharing news, and it comes in, and it's and it's and it's falling into their feeds. And and occasionally there are obviously local stories that are scattered in there as well. But a lot of the news that's there is not from coastal Mississippi. Um, that's a, that's a sad reality. The other thing is that on social media, it's often the local news. It's often not the local news that is engaging people. And as you and I talked about before, and I share constantly on this show that what, what Facebook and others have done to uh, develop news feeds that literally crank up the conflict that they aren't interested in sharing stuff that that we're all going to agree on. They want they want there to be disagreement because that that's what pays their bill. There is actually an important there's an important thing that's happening now at Facebook. You're probably aware of this. They're moving more toward a TikTok type of video platform, and uh, they're going to get less away from letting AI determine our needs feeds and going back to more of a sequential you know uh, engagement around your friends and whatever. I think they see that there is uh, there are some regulations potentially coming around how they provided news feeds to all of us and, and the ultimate impact it has had. That has been a bad trend, hasn't it? Well, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, they say they're going to do that, but the truth of the matter is that the, uh, the decision to drive uh, conflict and to only let us see what we agree with and hear from the people we agree with is not a bug, it's a feature. And the feature has made them billions and billions of dollars and the and the landscape is replete with examples in which even knowing the damage that they were doing with their platforms, they doubled down on those features so that they could continue to make money. So when they say, you know, they say they found religion and they're going to change that business model, I mean, I... I have a lot of uh, mistrust about the the uh, the unforced benevolence of large, rich corporations, and particularly ones you know owned and run by billionaire tech people. Um, I hope that that's true because I think it's really important. I think that um, you know we we see we have data, and some of this data is like out of Facebook and Instagram themselves that their platforms are doing real damage on several different levels. You could talk about the damage to teenagers and um, you know, teen, particularly teenage girls of Instagram and, the, and the, the tremendous pressure that they put themselves under and the tremendous emotional landscape that we force them to try to navigate with these, with these approval platforms. So that's literally what they are. And then from that, you extend all the way to, you know, uh, democracy itself and the ability to, I don't see how we're going to solve the serious problems we have as a society if we can't talk to each other across ideology and try to figure out common ground. And right now, the ways in which we are receiving information is specifically designed to make sure we can't talk across ideology and find common ground. And in fact, it's anti-profit to, to find ways to let us talk across ideology and find common ground. And these are big, serious problems that affect all of us. Yeah. You know, they're not, 
They're not problems of the right or problems of the left. The problems that we face as a, as a planet right now and as a society are big problems that we're all going to have to solve together. And if we can't figure out a way to have a conversation, how do we even begin to come up with a plan? We're going to come back in just a second before the conversation's over. We're going to talk about this piece that you shared with me from Ezra Klein uh, uh, that is incredible about how the issue is not necessarily the content, but it's the medium. It's And we're not focused on that enough. But I think one, and we'll come back to that in a second, but one of the things that caught my attention about this this graphic, 33 Problems with Media, that was in the visualcapitalist.com website, is things like, for example, uh, algorithmic radic- radic- radicalization. And the way they talk about it is the hypothesis that recommendation engines can steer users toward increasingly extreme content on social platforms. That's the p- part you're talking about. That That is a terrible byproduct of social media and it plays out every single day right here in front of our eyes and it's advanced artificial intelligence that's doing it and it makes them money and they're aware that this radicalization is happening they try to solve it by taking certain content down but at the root of this is the technology Uh, it's a serious problem isn't it yes it is it is the technology that's driving that is driving this process. And, and you know, they just recently revealed that, uh, that, that how much money Facebook has made off of the monetization of, of ads on, um, on hate group pages that they later take down. So they take down the pages, but they first make money off of them before they take down the pages. So that's where, that's where I have a lot of skepticism about their motivation to to create a space where we can start having real conversations and start, um, start, um, you know, acting like a community again. The other thing that you and I talked about in a past show was the, the one item that they discussed was surveillance capitalism, this whole notion of capturing and monetizing our data. The average person really doesn't know how extensive the data collection is coming from these companies. When you cho- when you choose to participate in their social media platform, you're then agreeing to giving them literally just about everything that <laughs> they're going to learn a lot about you, aren't they, James? Yep, they are indeed. Well, it's interesting, you know, I have this conversation with folks all the time where they don't want to have a, a an Echo, an Amazon Alexa in their house because they don't want to give that information out to Amazon. And uh, I say to them, you carry a digital phone in your pocket. I know, and that's the government and, and, and Everybody already knows where you are. I mean, the, 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 uh, the companies can feed an ad to your phone based on the fact that you're in the Home Depot and you're worried yeah. about whether, whether your Amazon overhears, you know, your dinner conversation. I'm not talking state secrets in my house. I don't know about your house. <laughs> So I don't really worry about it that much. When we come back, we'll finish this part about about uh, surveillance capitalism, which is really important when you think about things like TikTok. Um, and we're going to sh- we'll shift the gears to a column that was written that really got my attention, and we'll talk more about that. We'll see you after this break with James O'Byrne. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a friend, uh, a, a conversation with my friend James O'Byrne. We used to work together at Nola Media Group, and he now is, uh, he lives in the in the uh, countryside of France. He's just a smart guy, thinks a lot about media and sort of where we are today. And when we went to break, we were talking about surveillance capitalism. It's essentially the capture and monetization of our personal data. You know, James, we talked about this before, but as an ad delivery tool, it was absolutely brilliant. But to be used in any other way, the the unintended consequences are absolutely dramatic, aren't they? They are. And I, I think that the, the, uh, the companies, the tech companies, have developed really insidious ways to to do this. One of the things I notice a lot on Facebook, which I spend some time on, is that there's always these surveys or these questions or these, you know, you know, there's no word that starts with this letter and ends with that letter. Prove me wrong, and people then jump in, or you know, you know, they give a math problem, and all of these things that appear in your feed that aren't part of the people you're following are designed to collect data about you. And, you know, one of the things I would advise people to do is just stop responding to anything that didn't come from someone you follow or one of your friends, because that's just an effort by someone to collect more data about you. Um, you know, one of the things I like to do is 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 manipulate my my ad feed, it's not really hard to do, but if you just go to a website and visit a website of something you like, let's say it's classic cars, or, you know, if you like purses or whatever it is, you click on a couple of websites on your computer and the the ads feed in your phone and your Facebook feed will turn into those ads. And people have experienced this ad hoc because they'll go search for a hotel room and, uh, in New York, and the next thing you know, they're getting nothing but hotel room ads. But you can manipulate that feed yourself. But they're constantly collecting data on you, and and uh, and and then they're using that data. We've seen them use that data in ways that they're not supposed to use it. I mean, they've used that data. They've sold that data to to uh, many different organizations that uh, you know were where they guaranteed that they would wouldn't sell it. So this is an ongoing problem. And then you got TikTok, <laughs> owned by a Chinese company. Yeah, um, and it's now the number one social media capability in the in the world. How in the world uh, have, uh, is that not on our account? radar screen? Huh? You have a TikTok account? Uh, I did, but <laughs> I canceled it. Okay, I've never had one. But man, uh, yeah. believe the, me. You know, we've now gone from 100, 150 character messages to, you know, to one or two minute video clips, and that's how we're going to get information. Um, it's I don't see how we become an informed and um, and responsive society if we don't figure out um, a better way to to get our information and our news um, and and figure out a way to become more engaged and educated citizens. Um, That's scary. It is so, scary. So let's shift gears. You shared with me this piece that ran in the New York Times from Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein, and um, it makes a powerful piece. And I'll let you kind of lay it out a little bit, but. I thought it was interesting. He talked about how he got caught up in the Internet when it first 
started. Um, he was an early adopter, incredibly focused on all the information that that he was getting. He did not. He saw it, the plus that you know the plus of getting that information, how it would help him be smarter, and and help his mind reach and and all of this without really understanding that it was literally going to change the way his brain operated. And what what he said almost in the first couple of paragraphs, he said, "Online about ten years past, he said online life got faster, quicker, harsher, and louder." Uh, a little bit of everything all at the same time. Uh, he, he quoted a, a comedian as saying, but um, and it, then ultimately he goes on to say the collective consequences were a lot worse than that. Why is this piece so important? And we'll talk more about how it, you know what what's it really fault here is not the content that we also focus on, but actually the medium. Talk more about that. And it's a, it's a very in-depth piece, which probably means that it isn't getting the audience that it deserves because it isn't uh, 148 characters, nor is it a two-minute video. But Ezra is a person with a big brain as well, and he struggled a lot with this idea of how we figure out how to talk across ideology and solve big problems. And um, and I think one of the things that one of the key things that he's talking about here is that we have failed to take technology seriously. Um, we have entertainment. We have entertainmentized everything, um, and including our politics. I mean, reality TV mentions reality TV as you know something we all know is completely fictionalized and manipulated. So now, even the word reality no longer has meaning in reality. Uh, he talks about how all of the spaces that used to be for contemplating or learning are now taken up by our digital devices and in particular mentions going into any men's room these days and there's a row of men standing against the wall with their phone in one hand and we won't <laughs> have to mention what's in the other hand but they really are so tied to their digital devices that we can't put them down for five seconds so and we and we, and we continue to, to say that the problem is content but in fact the problem is the platform itself you can't fix the platform by just um, tinkering around the edges or taking some content down. And so we've created this, this entertainment model where, as he says, if you, if you live in it, the way that he sums it up is the conflict, the conflict, the conflict. Because that is everything. The conflict in Facebook, the conflict in, in cable news, the conflict... And our Twitter feed, wherever we are, we are driven towards the conflict. And so it shouldn't surprise us that given the infrastructure in which we all get our information, that all we see now is conflict. It's everywhere. Because we have been, we have been uh, convinced that the platforms are benign. And I think Ezra's point is, look hard at the platforms and decide whether they're really benign. I have friends, uh, a writer friend and his wife have two sons who are both teenagers. Neither of them have a cell phone. When I heard that, I thought it was crazy. I said, how can you have a teenager in 2022 without cell phones? But I think they're on to something because their kids do other things to divert themselves. They're not constantly in this approval engine looking for approval from their peers. 
They're not, you know, they're reading books, they're playing sports, they're they're entertaining themselves. So, so um, they've tried a different way that most people would think is is radical and, and maybe a little crazy. But I think that they're on to something. So one of the things, you said this a couple of times, and there's no avoiding the science around the impact on teenagers' brains uh, from social media. And one of, the, one of the things that he points out, he actually quoted a social psychologist who's been collecting a lot of data on this, and, and he said this, that, he said this bluntly. Uh, people talk about how to tweak it, talking about Instagram. Oh, let, let's hide the like uh, uh, count. He said, well, Instagram tried, but let me say this very clearly. There is no way, no tweak, no architectural change that will make it okay for teenage girls to post photos of themselves while they're going through pu- puberty for strangers and others to rape publicly. And he went on to say this. Um, he argues three things. First, the way Instagram works is changing how teenagers think. It's supercharging their need for approval uh, of how they look and what they say and what they are doing, making it both always available and never enough. Never enough. That's important. Second, there is it is uh, the, the fault of the platform that it is intrinsic to how Instagram is designed, not just how it is used. And third, that it's not bad, that, excuse me, that it's bad, that even if many people use it and enjoy it and make it through the gauntlet just fine, it's still bad. It is a mold we should not want our children to pass through. I mean, he's making no excuses. This social psychologist, based on the data he's gathered, knows without any doubt that it is having a terrible impact on teenagers. And what's important, James, is the point that they're making. It literally changes your brain. For adults as well, it changes the way your brain processes and thinks about things. Certainly, it's, it's doing that to teenage girls. But we somehow just... I think your point is well made that every time we get into a conversation about technology, big tech, uh, anything that's written about it, this piece by Ezra is a good example. You pointed that out. It's complicated. And uh, it's it's easier for, for people just to operate on a surface level without really understanding sort of how the underlying technology is changing their heart, their soul, and their behavior. Uh, how do we wrestle that one to the ground? It's a it's a really hard problem when I've thought about it, and I, you know I think that I think that one of the things we have to do is we have to, you know we used, when I was in high school in Louisiana we had uh, civics classes, and the idea of civics classes was just to learn the basic structures of American government, you know, and and it it wasn't controversial, it wasn't uh, ideological, it was just you know here's how here's how the system works. There's, you know, Congress, there's the president, there's bills, there's legislation, there's state government, local government, national government. It's just the, it was pretty fundamental. It was pretty basic. But it was important for people to understand how things work, how the American system works. I think we need the same thing for digital education, that this is the, you know, we're not preparing our children to go into this world. And they're digital negative. You know, they were born into this world. To, to be able to assess the, the, the system they're going to operate within, to be able to make smart decisions about 
Well, what does it mean when that survey is on Facebook? What does it mean data collection? What does it mean privacy? What do these things actually, how do they operate in the real world? I agree. That that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's We'll continue this on the other side. We're talking with James O'Byrne. We'll see you after this break. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a, a dynamic conversation about the evolution of media around the world, really, for that matter, with my friend James O'Byrne, who's coming from us to us from uh, the, the outskirts of France. He has uh, spent a lot of time in his journalism career in New Orleans and is just a really smart guy, thinks a lot about this stuff. Um, James, when we went to break, you were talking about the need to, to do a better job of educating people, sort of like we would do a civics lesson. And I agree that that would be very important. I hope at some point that, that Congress can get the capacity to think about this stuff because until they can really begin to, to really get their arms around uh, not just social media, but big tech and how things are being, how people are being manipulated, how these wedges are being drawn in, you know, into society, how our personal data is being used. Until we can really get to the root of that and begin to have more oversight. Uh, one of the things that Elon Musk said that with advanced artificial intelligence that we should look at it as I think you and I have discussed before, just like the FAA. I mean, you know, we have an FAA that, that monitors flights around the world. Why don't we have some federal agency overlooking AI? He's really concerned about the future of artificial intelligence and, and where it's headed. Same thing should be true about just big tech in general and and certainly how it evolves into significant media challenges. Hey, before we get too far, I want to I want to make sure we mention this. One of the points that he made, he, again, he keeps making this is the point. Line, this, correct? Excuse me. This is Ezra. Yes, yeah. Ezra, Ezra Klein. One of the points that he makes is that it's not the content; it's the median. And he talks about CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all being ideologically different. But he said cable news as a platform uh, is is really all about sameness: the look of the anchors, the gloss of the graphics, the aesthetics of the urgency, the threat, the speed, the intimacy, the immediacy, the conflict, the conflict, the conflict. When you and I were talking this morning, you sent that back to me: the conflict, the conflict, the conflict. Um, that's what cable news is all about. It has become entertainment, and too many people see it as just the gospel. That's a serious problem, isn't it? It is a serious problem, and you know the the uh, the the, the role of media used to be to inform and to um, and to to and to create some some calm and some knowledge where people were scared or worried about something, but somewhere along the way, television. News figured out that the the more profitable way to go is to magnify fear, and I think that the 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 architecture of cable news is designed to magnify our fears, and that did not used to be the role of the media. Walter Cronkite didn't go on television every night in CBS when about three fourths of the country was watching to magnify our fears. He was trying to inform us and trying to 
um, to to you know educate us on what was going on and and how it fit into the larger picture in a way that made us calmer and thus made us more capable of participating as as active and effective members of our communities and our society. And I think that if you if you take people who are already scared and anxious and you do, you build a business model around making them more scared and more anxious, again, I don't see how we're going to solve our big problems. I don't see how we're going to get where we need to be as a society if that's if that's how we're disseminating information. You add that to the way politics works in, in this uh, country, you know, you and I used to say in the journalism world, follow the money. Well, if you follow the money today, it's, um, you know, we don't we don't always know what the truth is, just in just in the normal operation of politics today. And then you add to that cable news and biased journalism and misuse of our data to drive wedges in the community through through social media and on and on and on it's uh, it's not only complicated but you know the more you learn about it the more you realize it's uh, you know it's the genie out of the out of the bottle i mean is it out of the how do you put the genie back in the bottle i don't know i think one of the things though that, that strikes me I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. Is that um, is that I'm kind of tired of old people, and, I, and by old people I mean people like you and me, and yeah. I mean it in this respect: that we 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 have left the world in in a, in pretty um, bad shape with a lot of serious problems, and I think there's a lot of energy and ideas to fix it. But I think that young people have a lot of trouble getting. Um, access into the system in order to be able to try to change it and make the world they want to make. Because we hold on pretty tight. We hold on pretty tight to our positions. We hold on pretty tight to our power. We hold on pretty tight to our influence. And I would like to see us as a society figure out a way to start turning over some of these issues and some of these problems to people who may have better ideas about it and are certainly going to be the ones who have to live with the decisions because you know a lot of the things that are that need fixing now are problems that our generation created but we're not going to be around to see the solutions for so i can't i can't agree more i can't you know he one of the points that ezra makes is that we should have serious discourse around news and politics and science and education and commerce and religion. And too often we're not having those conversations because we've turned them into entertainment packages. And uh, and it's just co-opted any kind of serious op- opportunities to talk about it. Hey, we're out of time, James O'Byrne, but it's been a pleasure. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in the future. Certainly, this won't be the last time you and I have a conversation about this. Uh, Enjoy it as ever, Ricky. It's cocktail hour here in France. So, ah, enjoy, enjoy your glass of wine, my friend. Take care. Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you after this. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.